Welcome to the show, everyone. This is Stakeholder-Centered Coaching, where we believe everyone deserves a stakeholder-centered leader. Today's episode is another installment in the series, Conversations with Coaches, where our top coaches share the behind-the-scenes unfolding of their career. The goal of this series is to give you that intimate peek behind the curtain so that you can see some of the key ingredients that go into building a successful coaching career, as well as the rewards that come at the end of the tunnel for those who are willing to put in the effort. I'm your host, Brandon Murgard, and if you'd like to ask a question or recommend a guest, send me an email to podcast at mgscc.net. Now, my guest today is a master coach with Stakeholder Center Coaching. He was one of the initial pioneers in making it simple to connect with coaches both domestically and abroad by introducing the online certification program to the United States. And he ran it successfully in North America for nearly a half decade. He's worked closely with co-founders Dr. Frank Wagner and the late Chris Coffey in training and certifying hundreds of coaches in our network. And in addition to his Marshall Goldsmith certification portfolio, he holds additional accreditations in tools like DISC, Emotional Intelligence, Crucial Conversations, and many more. He's joining us now from his home in Corning, New York. Please welcome Andy Taylor. Great to have you show on the show, Andy. Oh, Brandon, I'm excited. Looking forward to having a, a productive and real conversation about stakeholder, stakeholder-centered uh, stakeholder centered coaching and just why it works so well. Awesome. And you know, Andy, you are somewhat of a legend in our network. Um, I remember the, the first time you got certified, I think it was back in 2015 or so. Do I have that right? Um, we had, the reason I remember this and why you stand out in my mind so much is that we had just taken all of the uh, kind of refresher type videos that we gave to coaches at the end of the certification. And we front loaded them uh, with the hopes of, you know, increasing excitement about the material, but also improving <laughs> the learning engagement and retention. And you were one of the first people through the new system. But what you did was you gave us all the right signals that it was a big success. And I remember the day after launch, the day that you went in, I woke up that morning and I probably had 20 to 40 emails in my inbox from your account for uh, little little achievements you had done in the e-learning, questions you had asked, comments, feedback, feed forward, all of it. It was just such an enjoyable experience that you instantly became a household name for the team. So it's, it's truly when I say my pleasure <laughs> to have you on here today. You are a legend. Thank you. All right, sure. I'm glad to know, Brandon, that in some ways I'm famous. Yeah. <laughs> I will say this. As soon as I started learning about the methodology mm -hmm. and seeing how the pieces connected, mm -hmm. I've always been fascinated with human behavior and how do you get people to make long-term positive changes? Mm -hmm. And I read it. I looked at the training, the methodology, and I'm like, I'm all in. Let's do this. And I did a deep dive and it's been one of the best things I've ever done. Oh, that's so good to hear. And, you know, um, you have been very successful at, at applying this and understanding it. Um, you know, I, I, I'd like to, if you're okay, just skip the usual lead into the interview because the story you were telling me just before we started clicking record was so good. Um, I'd love to bring our listeners in to hear it and then talk more about it. So, um, you know, ladies and gentlemen, just before we hit record, Andy was telling me about this remarkable journey 
um, of one of his clients that he that they went through with coaching um, and using what he learned in stakeholder center coaching, the principles, uh, it just completely turned things on its ear. So Andy, would you would you be willing to share that story yeah. in full? Sure. This uh, was a coaching engagement I did a number of years ago, uh, and I worked with Marjorie. Marjorie was vice president of operations for a manufacturing company just down the road from me. And, uh, you know, I remember I got a phone call from the CEO. He said, hi, Andy, I got your name from uh, Denise from the Chamber of Commerce, and I hear you do leadership coaching. Can you help me? And I said, sure. I mean, let's talk about it. Let's see. He goes, well, I, I want to retire in a couple of years. And uh, I have a vice president of operations, and I want to give her the helm, but uh, I can't. She has behaviors that hold her back. She is uh, a bull in a china shop at times. She has rough edges. Some good people that have worked for her have left. And um, can you help me? And I need to get someone to help her change. So he's talked about all these negative things about her. And then he also said she's smart, dedicated, understands the business more than anyone, will do anything to get results, and is the most dependable person that I've ever worked with. So you have these two extremes. You have clear behaviors holding her back and enormous potential over here. So out that engagement, we made simple changes here and uh, the, the changes that she, she made were astounding. She ended up getting promoted and is now CEO of the, uh, of the organization. It was a profound experience for me. Uh, I'd love to keep talking about this, Brandon, because yeah. this is, if, if that'd be okay. Definitely. Tell me what so, happened. Yeah. So, you know, she's vice president of operations and she forgot the people part of her business. Part of her business is to engage, listen, motivate people, get them on board. And she was too hyper-focused on results. She could be rude. She could be obnoxious. And um, there was a little bit of a revolt against her. So what I did, you know, one part of stakeholder-centered coaching is that you do 360 feedback. I went to the plant, they carved out a couple of hours and, you know, did 360 interviews. You know, what are her strengths as a leader? Uh, you know, what does she need to do in the future to be a better leader? And what's one behavior she needs to either stop, start, modify, or change? I got all of the uh, 360 feedback. I probably interviewed about 10 people. I invited her over to my office and I showed it to her. And she looked at it, and she was very quiet. Her face got red. And I thought she was going to get angry. And uh, she started to cry. She looked at it. A lot of this, um, um, she had some behavioral blind spots. So she's in my office, and she's crying. And now I'm a trained social worker, and I can deal with crying. It's, she cried. She stopped. And I said, this is what I want you to do. I think I can really help you take your performance up here. I want you to go home, think about it, look at the 360 feedback again, talk with your husband about it if you know you feel so inclined. And when you come back to see me first thing Monday morning, we'll make a decision. Maybe this is something you want to do, and maybe it's not. If it's something you want to do, you've got to be all in, and I need your permission to hold you accountable uh, to do things at certain times and in certain ways that will be out of your comfort zone. So anyway, she goes home. She comes back first thing, Brandon, Monday morning, and she's exhausted. She, I, I don't think she slept. I think she cried a lot. You know, she I really identified that she has these key behaviors that don't that are holding her back, stopping her from reaching her true potential. So she came back to my office. We had a cup of coffee. 
And uh, she said, Andy, I spoke to my husband. I didn't sleep much this weekend. Um, I want to do this. I want to be a better leader. I want to be a better person. I'm in. So um, we looked at it, the 360 feedback. Um, I did a cost-benefit analysis. I had to make sure she was really going to follow the model. I did a very, very careful screening with her. And um, she, uh, uh, after the first couple of months, by leading by example and going through it and getting out of her comfort zone, incredible things happened. At first, people were scared about her retaliating. You don't do what I say in the way that I want it, you're gone. Or, you know, she just had a very stubborn street tour and um, it's that people element I needed to draw out of her more. So one cool really thing happened that helped me understand how small changes can have profound results. So we're halfway into this coaching engagement. She's doing really well. We ran the mini survey. Uh, she's off to a very good start. Her boss is pleased. So we're four months into it. People know that she's not going to retaliate. You know, she had apologized to people in our kickoff meeting. So, you know, as part of stakeholder-centered coaching, every month the leader goes up to the their coworkers and direct reports, you know, give me a suggestion I can do in the next 30 days to be a better leader. What can I do to improve? So, um, you know, she did it now. We're on month number six. And uh, she went up to her direct reports. And one of them said, Marjorie, you know what you can do? What would be kind of cool is that at the end of every shift at the manufacturing plant, if you could go to the main entrance where people leave and they come in, and as we leave, just smile and say, have a good evening. So Marjorie looked at this. She goes, you know, Andy, I really don't want to do this, but I need to do this. So talk about a simple and a subtle behavior. So she starts doing it and she said, Andy, I've been doing it now for a couple of weeks and I get it's five o'clock. We shut down the plant and I'm there by the main entrance and they're leaving. And I kicked it up a notch. I smiled and I said, thank you for your work today and have a good evening. At first, their direct reports, they were looking at her like she has lost her mind. You know, this pain in the butt, evil, mean person is now smiling and say, have a good day. She kept doing it month after month after month. You know, I ended up talking to her about a year ago. And I said, I tell a story about you smiling and say, have a good evening. Thank you for your work. And she smiled and she goes, Andy, I still do that today. So talk about small behaviors key strategic behaviors that genuinely let people know that you care and you want to be a, a better a better person, a better leader. And by engaging them, uh, her experience was profound. At the end of the engagement, she said, Andy, you know, I sleep better now. I feel like I don't have the world on my shoulder. I'm a better mom. I'm a, uh, uh, a better grandmother. I don't fight as much with my husband. I'm just more relaxed. So that was one of my first few coaching engagements. And at first I thought, you know, I don't think it's going to work. It's not going to work. And I called Chris Coffey, my mentor. I had the incredible experience of working closely with him for four years. And I'm like, Chris, I've got a live one. I'm not too sure it's going to work. And he goes, and, and okay, this is what you're going to do. You're going to tell her how it works. This is specifically what you have to do and when you have to do it. And if you don't do it, I'm not going to work with you. You're either all in or you're all out. What do you want to do? So 
I sat down with her and I said, Marjorie, this is what you have to do. And uh, if you do this, great things will happen. And if you don't do this, within a month or two, I'll pull out and, you know, we'll both go off to, you know, better futures. And she said, Andy, I am all in. She wanted to be promoted. She was passionate about the work that she did. And man, Brandon, she knocked it out of the park. I, I was stunned. And at the end of uh, the year engagement, she almost had perfect scores. So it was back then, it was like, you know, negative three to positive three. You know, with her key goals, she averaged around like a 2.83. Just phenomenal. Just phenomenal. Yeah. So that's the power of this. You know, you get the right client and they're willing to get out of their uh, comfort zone. They can display courage, humility, discipline. They can embrace those core values. It's amazing what can happen. So, you know, Marshall put this together and he's like, all right, so this is what I think needs to happen. And this is years ago. We got to go public with our goals. They have to check in with people to make sure it's working. And we need to measure results. The stakeholder-centered coaching process is brilliant and it's a game changer. Wow. That's a, I mean, Andy, that's the second time I've heard the story. I still have just as many goosebumps as the first. Um, it sounds like that was one of the most impactful behaviors was just saying goodbye to her employees, right? I mean, how many how many business books give that as a prescriptive advice? Yeah. You know, so she, granted, she also did one other thing. We did the kickoff meeting together, and she had pissed off a lot of people. She's in this drive to get results. You know, we're going to get this done. And she went into our kickoff meeting when you know everyone is in the same room and she's talking about the goals she's going to work on. She's talking about the 360 results and all this stuff. And she wanted a startup. And I said to her, I said in prep. prep preparing this. And I said, it's probably a good idea that you apologize to people. You've rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And if you want to get them on board, be a human being, be a little bit vulnerable and apologize. So we go into the stakeholder center kickoff meeting. It's a 15, 20 minute meeting. That's it. Thank you everyone for participating in 360 feedback, spending some time with Andy. I've read the feedback. Here are the goals that I'm going to be working with. I'm going to be checking in with you as I go through this process. And for those that I've upset, I've stepped on some toes, I've disappointed people, um, I am truly so sorry and I want to apologize to you. And I'm going to try not to do that again. And when she said that, Brandon, when she gave a sincere apology to people in the group, a couple of people did something. What do you think they did? I mean, I can think of a few managers, if they had apologized to me, I probably would have broke down crying right then and there. Right. Two of the, her direct reports started crying and they were just grabbed some tissues. They didn't say much, but it, talk about a big curveball. You know, this woman, I offer my apologies. I'm going to change. I'm going to be checking in with you every month uh, to become a better person and leader. Woo. Game okay. changer. Oh, that's amazing. And you know, you're a very experienced coach. I'd love to ask um, for those listening, would you say that this is atypical or would you say this is a fairly expected result from working with a coach? Boy, what a great question. It all depends. And I'll tell you where I made my mistakes early on. When you interview a leader to go through this process, right? You have to go slowly and you have to be a guarded optimist. You have to make sure that the leader understands stakeholder-centered coaching and what you have to do. You know, you're uh, going to get 360. You're going to go public with a goal. You're going to check in with folks every month. How am I doing? 
Uh, and you have to make sure that leaders will embrace courage, humility, and discipline. Courage, the courage to go public and say, I want to be a better leader. I want to reach out to you for help. A discipline to do certain things at certain times, whether you feel like it or not. And then humility to go up to a, uh, your direct reports, your coworkers every month and say, how am I doing? Give me a couple of suggestions how I'm doing. What can I do in the next 30 days to get better? The leader that you screen has to adopt these three core values. And if they don't, the coaching process will not work. So when I first got engaged with stakeholder-centered coffee, I mean, stakeholder-centered coaching with Chris Koff, Frank Wagner, I actually got coaching engagements and I just, I made assumptions. Yeah, oh yeah, she'll do this, he'll do that. And we go through the coaching process and had one leader saying, I don't want to check in with stakeholders. I didn't realize that was that important. I don't want to do it. And I never should have taken that engagement at the beginning. I ended up firing him, you know, couldn't let his guard down. Uh, what didn't really understand the process since my bad, I didn't take the, the time and say, are you all in? I did that with Marjorie. This is exactly what you have to do. And if you do these things, really cool stuff is going to happen here. And if you don't do them within a month or two, it's time for us to move on and call it quits. And one of a really tough thing for coaches, and when you have a bad engagement, is to end it. But I'm, I'm assuming we can uh, talk about that a little bit later on. Oh, I love it. And I think this is important for coaches to talk about. Firing your clients is, needs to be a normal part of your routine if you're working with bad leaders. And so, you know, two things I'd like to get into with you today uh, is, is how you actually fire a client. What's the conversation you have? What's the wording you use? And then just before that is how you know for sure uh, that a client needs to be fired. I think it's um, Gary Vaynerchuk who says hiring is guessing and firing is knowing. Um, so maybe we start there before we get into the career yeah. development. How do you know, what markers are you looking for to know that this client needs to be be out? I know there's many of them. If you could uh, right. elucidate. So how do you things. know when you have to fire a client? Is that the question? Yeah. Yeah. So you actually tee it up at the beginning and you're very clear. Mm -hmm. If you go through this process, right? Courage, humility, discipline, follow our proven research validated process. Uh, it can make you fly. Mm -hmm. And here are some things that you'll get out of it. Uh, if you don't follow our process, I'm going to know within the first month or two, we'll have a conversation. You told me you would do this and this and this. And then either we fix it there and you get on all aboard or we call it quits. You know, I'll tell your boss, uh, you don't want to go through the process and we'll move on to better things. Uh, I understand that your time is valuable, is valuable. So is mine. So you set it up in the very beginning that if you don't follow the process, I'm going to call you on it immediately and maybe we need to call it quits. Wow. So that's step one. And step two is that they have to follow up with their stakeholders every single month. And they give me their word on it right in the beginning. Andy, I'll do it. I'll do it. And as soon as they start skipping a month or two, you put the brakes on everything and you have a really, you know, I guess a come to Jesus meeting. Is this something you really want to do? You gave me your word that you would check in with them every month and you're not doing that. What message is that sending to them? What message is that sending to your boss? Now, if you really screen the leader correctly in the very initial stage, this stuff doesn't happen. It's rare. But if you take things for granted and you just make assumptions that they'll follow the process, you're going to get a rude awakening. 
and that's no fun. Working with clients that aren't qualified cause headaches, digestive problems, you can't sleep at night. It's just no fun. So that's when you fire them. Thank you for sharing that. I think we do need to talk more about the the process of identifying and firing them. Um, would you mind me asking if you've only had that experience once or has this been something that's happened multiple times in your career? Yeah, I fired three clients and it's because I didn't screen them well enough in the beginning. I haven't had to fire a client in the last three or four years. I've gotten mm -hmm. really good at screening and I talk a lot about courage, humility, and discipline. And if they're all on board with those core values and you set it up right, I think it was Deming that said that 85% of the value in what you do comes from the first 15%. And, uh, you know, in our trainings, we drill it home that this is how you set it up at the beginning for it to flow. Mm -hmm. So uh, I love the process. It's brilliant. It's simple. It's not easy. And it takes work to... Um, figure out the moving parts and how to do it. And I think you have to get five to 10 coaching engagements under your belt before you can do it, um, before you get, what's it, uh, unconscious competence. You can do it without thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's a learning curve to this. Yeah, that's going to be my next question is, is screening, appropriate screen, screening of a client, something that can be learned in a training program? Or is this, which is what I hypothesize, it has to be done through experience and needing to work with those clients that are bad clients to have taken on. What's your thoughts? Yeah. So in our certification uh, training, what I learned a lot from the late Chris Coffey is that here are all the specific questions you ask in advance. You know, do you want to do this courage, humility, and dis discipline? Can you let your guard down? Can you be a vulnerable human being? Here's the sequence. What do you think? What might be hard for you to do? What might be easy? Are you all in? Uh, and usually if the carrot, mm -hmm. if the benefits farly outweigh the negative stuff, someone might get promoted. One of the reasons uh, Marjorie wanted to get promoted is that, you know, she had extended family. She wanted maybe to help with college education. She wanted money to go into her retirement. You know, what a nice way to cap off a career with financial security. So if the carrot is strong enough, if the why, they'll figure out the how. And that's what you have to make sure when you screen them. And the nice thing about our cadre or our team of coaches, if you get stuck with a client and it's like, well, Andy, I'm not sure whether she or he is all in, just call us and we will step you through it and make sure that you have a good engagement. Um, it's a wonderful supportive community of stakeholder-centered coaches. I've been blown away by all the support I've gotten throughout my journey. It's been absolutely wonderful. Mm. Well, and you know, this has been a common theme on the show that I think just about every master coach I've interviewed when I've said, what are the big, big difference makers for you? Most of them have said the support I've been able to, to get out there, do it myself, get stuck, bang my head against the wall, pick up the phone, get some help and go back out and move on to greener pastures. Um, and you've also been at the, the helm of helping many coaches. You yourself have certified hundreds of coaches and, um, you know, your name is, is, your name comes up with coaches who are nowhere even near North America, but they know you from the some of the videos that you've put out. They know you from some of the ways that you've supported the network at large, such as the check-in calls that you you began some years ago and have recorded every one of for our community. It's been um, you yourself have just been such a powerhouse, and that's why I wanted to have you on. So let's transition a little bit to talk about how Andy 
uh, came to be because you also have a fascinating background that has uh, positioned you for a very interesting career at present. So let me start with, you know, what were you doing before you became a coach? Yes, I have a master's degree in social work. And for the past 25, 30 years, I've been in the mental health industry, managed a mental health center, worked in hospitals, schools, done a lot of work, private practice, child welfare programs, employee assistance programs for local companies. So after doing it for 20, 25 years, the mental health industry is tough. And I got tired. I didn't want to quit it, but I, I needed a change. I needed some fresh air and I wanted to do something that would complement my skill base. So I'll never forget it. It was 2000 and I think a year before I, I took my first online training with you guys. Um, you know, I had lunch with a director of HR at Corning Incorporated. Corning Incorporated, a uh, Fortune 500 company, their headquarters are in Corning, New York and upstate New York. And having lunch with this guy, uh, you know, tell him I'm a little bit tired. You know, I would wonder if I could have some other career options. And he brought a book with him. And I'm having lunch with him in an Indian restaurant. And he goes, Andy, this is a great book. And it was Marshall's book, What Got You Here Won't Get You Here. And this guy, I mean, you should read this, Andy. This is really good. So I'm in the Indian restaurant. I had lamb curry and it was delicious. I even remember that. Mm -hmm. So I bought the book, and this is really before Amazon. I mean, this is a while ago. I ordered it, and it came hard copy, not the Kindle edition, and I couldn't put it down, Brandon. I read it, and I'm up all night. I ended up going in the guest room. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. My wife sticks her head in. Honey, what are you doing? And I'm like, honey, this guy is on to something. This Marshall Goldsmith guy, I think he gets it. He understands behavioral change. And I'm coming at it from a, a clinical social work perspective. And when you're a social worker, your job is to get people to change. And this is his theory. So this is his clinical stuff. This is how he does it. I love it. So it's up all night, went to the website, signed up for an online training. And it was interesting. I was so jazzed about it. The only one that I could get into within my time frame was the one for the European community, right? Yeah. It started at two o'clock in the morning and it ended at six o'clock in the morning for every day for a week. I think it was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you had a break day and then Friday and Saturday. So for a week from two o'clock in the morning to six o'clock, I'm learning, I am training with people from all over Europe and China and Japan. And, and by the end of the week, I was never been so tired and I don't really remember what happened. All I remembered is I wanted more. This we're on to something here. I wanted more. So then it was a few months later, I took a, a training in Chicago in person, uh, met Frank Wagner, loved it, took another training with Chris Coffey in New York City. I asked him more questions. What about this? What about this? I think I drove him nuts with how many questions I asked him. What do you do in this situation? What do you do in that? I went to another training and I went back again and again because I felt like I was at home. Uh, and I love the methodology. And here's a cool thing about stakeholder-centered coaching, right? I want to like, I think Steve Jobs talked about putting a dent in the world or something. I want to make a difference in the world, you know, social worker by training. If you help a leader that's up pretty high, that has influence and people, all sorts of people below, you get a leader up top to make simple, positive strategic behavioral change, the ripple effect it has below is astounding. You know, it's sort of like what Marshall's work he did with Alan Mulally. The work that I've done with leaders up here 
it ripple effects down and their directors do it and their uh, direct reports and it goes all the way down. So if you want to change culture, you get these folks up at the very top to make some simple behavioral changes. The ramifications can be profound and by helping one, you're helping many. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I can speak from the, uh, being a researcher on the backside of this. I mean, it's, it's empirically astounding the range of, let's say, splash damage when that leader actually improves. Um, and we see the numbers on the backside. It's incredible. What's, what's astounding and what most people uh, may not fully be aware of is that our research on, on, let's say, the report on leadership as a contact sport, 86,000 individuals get trained and we follow up a year later with the stakeholders, how much did the person, how much did the leader follow up with you on their action plan? Was it uh, anywhere from inconsistently and infrequently to consistently and frequently? I think it was a five or seven point scale um, that those who followed up consistently, 95% of them were also rated by stakeholders as being a more effective leader. Those leaders weren't working with coaches. This was self-implemented. The numbers when you bring in a coach go up to 100%. Now, I say that with a caveat that that research is obviously very biased because we're looking at our coaches and their work with the leaders. But we know that even without a coach, your your floor is 95% replicated by third parties at least, I believe, five times now. Um, it's it's astounding. So when you read this book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, Um <laughs> Was there anything that really was up all night? I was up all night. I couldn't put it down. Yeah. What stood out to you? Like what, any chapters or any topics that really just grabbed you by the neck and said, Andy, keep on going. Yeah. So when I started reading it, I'm like, okay, you know, I get about it. You you do 360, you identify a behavioral goal to prove delegation. I have to be a better listener. I got to build trust, collaboration. Okay, I get that. You know, I do that in my social work practice. What are the key things people need to do differently to improve relationships with people, to get on track? I get that part. And then the part that I really loved is that courage, humility, discipline. You got to check in with people every single month. How am I doing? What's working? What's not working? What do I need to be doing? And it's the fact that a leader will check in with a direct report or a colleague. And what can I do to be a better leader? Just the act of them doing that can have profound implications on relationships, on results. Uh, and then I was kind of thinking, all right, does this stuff really work, right? You know, I'm reading the book. This is all great. And then you look at the research studies behind it, which is the meat and potatoes, right? I mean, that's what it is. You know, it's just been, they had a research study with a thousand people at GE. They're researching this over at these different companies. The research says that the process works if people go through it. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so it's kind of like, you know, you talk the talk and then you walk it. And I don't know too many other coaching methodologies or processes where people that, that truly work, where you get measurable results. And the other thing that I was thinking when I was reading about Marshall, I said, this guy's got some chutzpah. You only pay him if he gets results. Are you kidding me? And I said, I love it. I love it. Um, so, um, and I think that's a key differentiator. I see so many coaches working with people. I don't really know what they do and, 
are, are they really adding value? Can you measure results? And you think about it now in our hyper-competitive world, you want measurable results. You want to get real bang for your buck. That's stakeholder-centered coaching. It is. You know, I, I must have spent uh, a good year of my life uh, writing a research report on um, measures of effectiveness in coaching and pouring through all the studies. I did a systematic literature review on what are people actually measuring? And it's, it's, a, it's a little scary because people are asking the leader, are you satisfied with the coach? Do you enjoy your relationship with the coach? Do you feel like you got better? Does your coach think that you got better? Um, you know, there's very little, or, or we're also having some very, in my opinion, convoluted measures such as how uh, does this affect business performance or how, what is the ROI on coaching? If you, for every dollar you spend, what difference does that make in business um, performance? We are the only ones who ask stakeholders, you're the, you're the people following the leader. Do you think the leader is more effective? Yes or no? It's simple. Yeah. Um, do you use the no growth, no pay model that you just discussed? Uh, absolutely. And I, um, you know, I think, I think it makes you a better coach, mm -hmm. you know, uh, by only getting paid at the end of the engagement after it adds real value, it makes you screen leaders better. It makes you hold them accountable. It gives you the courage to get them out of their comfort zone. You don't get a leader out of your comfort zone, out of their comfort zone, not much happens. So only pay me at the end if it works makes you a much better coach. And it also sends an interesting message to the leader. All right, Andy's not going to get paid unless I get better as the leader. Um, boy, I don't want to let him down. I need to do this. He's willing to go out on a limb for me. I'm going to do the same for him. What in your mind do you see as the overlap between social work and coaching? Yeah. So when I went to social work school, I, uh, the, the, social work modality that I got trained extensively in. It's called solution-focused therapy. It's a strength-based, goal-oriented um, uh, coaching process, and uh, it works brilliantly. You know, what are the person's strengths? Uh, what are the key goals they need to work on? Let's focus on their strengths and not their weaknesses. It's a different clinical paradigm. So I get extensive training on this. I use this modality for 10 or 15 years. And then I got introduced to leadership coaching and I looked at the, the underpinnings of stakeholder-centered coaching. And I'm like, it's, it's the same, mm -hmm. you know, uh, strength-based, goal-oriented, get them to change behaviors. Uh, and it, it, was a, it was very easy for me to parlay my social work skills into the coaching. How do you get rapport with people? How do you get them engaged? How do you hold them accountable? So for me, the transition from being a social worker to a leadership coach in terms of the skill base, it was pretty easy. Mm, that's amazing. Uh, I imagine that you have a competitive advantage in terms of helping leaders become vulnerable because that's a key aspect of checking in with stakeholders. And you know, if I'm coming from, let's say, uh, an operations background, that's not my specialty. So do you feel that you have, uh, let's say, uh, over and above skills in terms of helping people be vulnerable? And how does that play out in your coaching? Yeah, so I think it's, it's, it's pretty simple. If you want someone to be vulnerable, you have to be vulnerable yourself. And I often will tell some coaching stories about when I had to be vulnerable or other leaders had to be vulnerable. 
And it's a little scary at first, but here are the enormous benefits of being more vulnerable as a leader. And if you share examples and if you, um, especially personal ones, they're like, okay, maybe it won't be that bad. And then once they do a little bit of it and they see the results from it, it just opens the gate. And being vulnerable in today's corporate world is not easy. It takes courage. Oh, yeah. Um, good. Well, I mean, one area that I'm particularly eager to explore with you, Andy, is um, how you, how you, uh, typically how you would have transitioned from being a social, work, uh, social worker to becoming an executive coach. Um, but I know that you do this, do them both so well and continue to do so. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'd like to talk about the family dynamic. This is something our coaches frequently um, d- discuss. Tell me a little bit about how the conversation unfolded with your family when you first brought up the idea of getting into coaching. So my wife knew that I was getting a little bit burned out in the social work industry, which mm-hmm. is not uncommon. I've been doing it for 20 to 25 years. I just needed to mix it up and to, uh, do something a little bit outside of it. And I learned about it and I came and I said, honey, there's a couple of trainings I want to go to, leadership coaching. And um, uh, I just think it would be good for my own mental health to do something different. She was all on board with it. My wife is a a teacher, high school biology teacher, uh, loves making a difference in people's lives. And she said, honey, go for it. And then she goes, I don't care what it costs. I'm like, cool, just go for it. So um, she was incredibly supportive. Uh, So I think I'm fortunate in that vein, you know? Yeah. Do you feel like that um, her support generally improved your confidence to get into it? Did it it frighten you a bit feeling that I've really got to show that I can do this now? Um, You know, not really. I mean, I, I took the, the leap. I, I was a little bit worried, can I do this? You know, you go through these trainings, will I be able to be a successful stakeholder-centered coach? How do I do this from beginning to end? And I had some serious bouts of anxiety in my first couple of coaching engagements. I don't know any coach that doesn't. Am I doing it correctly? What about this? Did I miss this step? Uh, You just take a deep breath. There's this saying, feel the fear and just do it anyway, Mm. you know? You feel it and you do it anyway. And what helped me the most is that, all right, I'm taking her through a coaching process or him through a coaching process. It is proven. It is research validated. And I love it. And we're doing it, baby. Yeah, I think that's helpful to just know if this is going to work as long as I can get them to do it. Uh, it does take a bit of pressure off. But like what what kept you up at night? You know, you're you're branching out into this new field. You've got the full support of your family. Um what kept you up? Um, a couple of things. Can I uh, generate referrals locally? And does this really work as well as it's supposed to? And do I have the skills to take a leader from the beginning to the end? And all of those questions answered that. I mean, I'm a pretty action-oriented guy. There's this quote by uh, Benjamin Disrael, 100 years ago, former prime minister of England, that stays with me. Uh, Taking action does not necessarily create happiness, but you can't be happy unless you take action. So I took action. I got out of my uh, comfort zone. I had some pro bono coaching engagements. I marketed through Rotary Chamber of Commerce, and I started doing it. 
And that's where you get the real expertise is by doing. It's not by watching. It's not by reading. You'll get the conceptual stuff, but you got to get in there in the weeds and do it. And what I loved about it is just so much fun. Stakeholder-centered coaching is fun. You see leaders become better leaders. You see them start getting results. You see them smiling more. You see them enjoying life more. You see them feeling the fear of getting out of their comfort zone and good things happen. It doesn't get much better. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think it's I think it's safe to say that pretty much anyone who starts out at a, at a, as a coach um, at some point is going to incur a fairly sizable mistake um, early in their first few years. Uh, you know, uh, but I know you've also mentored many coaches. What common mistakes do you see coaches making, and would it what would you um, advise a new coach not to do to prevent those? see it all the time you know we'll, we'll do a we would do a certification training with frank and chris we'd have maybe 25 coaches they get certified and you know three or four months later i get the call andy um I, I got an engagement and i'm coaching with someone and um they're having problems and things aren't going according to plan so the biggest thing that i see is that in our raw exuberance to do stakeholder-centered coaching and to work with a leader we have rose colored lenses and we look Mm -hmm. at the leader as what we want them to be and not like how they are. You slow it down and kudos to the late Chris Coffey. He helped me so much with this. Slow it down and be a guarded optimist. Um, And is this person a fit for our model? Will they follow the steps? Will they embrace courage, humility, and discipline? You've got to screen them very closely at the beginning. And if they deviate a little bit from the process in that first month, you're on it. Mm-hmm. And what I find is that, you know, coaches will meet with leaders. Oh, yeah, you know, we'll get some goals. We'll do a 360. You'll check in periodically. And they don't explain our coaching process in great detail. And the problem with that is our coaching process, I mean, it's simple. It's not easy. It requires work and dedication and courage on part of the leader. And if you don't specify exactly what they need to do, when they get to a point in this coaching process, it's not clear to them and it's out of their comfort zone. They're not going to want to do it. Uh, Andy, I don't want to check in with stakeholders. You know, I did that. You know, I don't want to meet with Tony. He's over in Europe. Uh, There's a time difference. You know, I'll see him next month. They make up all of these excuses to convince themselves not to do what it is they need to do. And then us coaches, we get so involved in us wanting to be liked. It's okay. You didn't meet with him. I don't want to hurt your feelings. But, you know, part of a stakeholder-centered coach is holding a leader accountable to get out of their comfort zone. And if you don't do that as a coach, you're failing as a coach. It's not so much to be likable and have this great rapport. Get them out of their comfort zone so good things can happen and they can get what they want. So, um, and that's not easy for a coach to do. Yeah, you know, I'll ask a good question because we are on air right now on recording. For anyone who is a coach or a leader listening to this, I'm going to ask an expert, a foremost expert on coaching, a very important question I want you all to listen. Andy, the question is this, have you ever in your experience working as a coach or working with coaches or working with leaders, perhaps not in a coaching capacity, have you ever seen someone go through the stakeholder center coaching process, succeed without doing Without 
while omitting any individual step of the process, following up with a stakeholder, measuring the, the impact formatively and summatively. Have you ever seen someone succeed while skipping a step? Absolutely not. I don't think, you know, maybe statistically you can be successful uh, doing that. It's incredibly risky. And if people skip the steps, uh, you're skipping the meat and the potatoes. You're skipping the feedback from stakeholders. You're 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 skipping uh, the heart and soul of this coaching process. If you don't follow the process, you're not going to get better. Uh, and maybe there are some exceptions here or there, but I wouldn't risk it with anything. So I think it's good with when you first start off uh, with stakeholder-centered coaching is to have some slight hints of OCD. Did I do step one right? Okay, checklist. Did I do step two? Okay, the kickoff meeting. Did that go well? Check three. All right. Have I followed up with Frank and Chris just to make sure I did step one, two, and three? So what's pretty interesting, people that um, I think engineers, logical people, sequential people, they love our coaching process, you know, because it's it's step by step. I don't want to say it's turnkey, but there are certain steps you have to do. If you're artistic and spontaneous and you want to go with the flow and be creative, it's not going to work. You have to follow. I've had some, my first two or three coaching engagements, you know, I'm a master certified coach. I'm ICF certified and taking a leader. Ah, I don't need to do that. I don't want the stakeholders to do that. I'll do it instead. This is where I'll add value. And I see all of these coaches, myself included in the past, we're working too hard. We're adding too much value. And that's the job of the stakeholder. The people that really get these leaders to be better are the stakeholders. I mean, they work with this leader, you know, 10 hours a day, sometimes more. They know the leader's strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, it's sort of like executive presence, right? What is executive presence? You know, you go up, I could teach someone a leader, this is how you do executive presence. You know, you do this and you wear this and you say this, you know, uh, executive presence to maybe a direct report is that when we're in a staff meeting, ask for my opinion on something, listen to my perspective, involve me more. That's executive presence. Another one might be, you know, before you share ideas, Use someone else's first and then build upon it. That's executive presence. So the key to this whole thing is that as the coach, I'm not the master guru coach. It's the stakeholders that are the ones that make all the difference. Where I'm a master is that I'm a master facilitator. I work behind the scenes, making sure leader following the process, connecting. We've got some results and making sure. So stakeholders are the unsung heroes of this. Uh, Frank Wagner, another great mentor, I've learned so much from him, has this nice saying, it's like, leave no footprint. The real footprint is left by the stakeholders. We take them through the process, kudos go to the stakeholders, and the more that they feel engaged, recognized, listened to, the better that relationships solidify and transform. So it's kind of magic what happens between the leaders and the stakeholders. And what I see all the time is that these over-eager coaches that want to add all this value, they jump in the middle of it and they stop it or interfere with it or complicate stakeholders engaging with leaders. It takes courage, humility, and discipline as a coach to step out, zip it, 
and let the engagement happen between stakeholder and leader. It's not an easy thing to do, especially if you have a big ego and you want to add value or you have a PhD or a master's degree in leadership development. You got to pull out and let the magic happen and stay on the sidelines. Not That's beautiful, Andy. I really like that. And you know, your, your opening story uh, validates that it's, it's the big, a big difference maker for that, that leader was just saying goodbye to their direct reports. And there's no consultant out there who's going to come and put that in their report and say, here's the, the suggestion is, you know, throw out all this analysis, just say goodbye to people at the end of the day. And you have to ask stakeholders to get that actual type of insight. And then branded, she kicked it up a notch. She mm -hmm. smiled. And as they were leaving, thank you for your work today and Amazing. have a good evening. Amazing. Drop mic. Boom. Yeah. And then People 2 looked at her like, she was crazy. That's her, her scores. Again, I, I have poured over the, uh, the databases that our research is, is, um, done, is produced by our research. So let, let me jump in here. Number. I'll tell you one other story. When I was doing the, the, the 360s, a lot of her direct reports were afraid of retaliation. Mm -hmm. um, so this is a, a blue a, a blue collar place, right? I had one woman come in and she stood up like this, stood in the corner, didn't even sit down. She goes, Andy, she's never going to change. Never. And I'm writing, okay, she's never going to change. I'll put quotation. I'm thinking, I better call, call Chris Coffee because I don't know what to do. And I'm never going to change. And she goes, never, Andy, never. And then what was interesting, by month nine, of doing the mini surveys, you know, on every three, four months on the very third one. Uh, and I think it was her because she said, I now enjoy working with her. And in that first, the survey that first went out after a couple of months, this one stakeholder vented, ah, she's not going to change. She's getting worse. And at the very end, the same person, um, I now enjoy, actually enjoy working with her. So people can change. It takes time. Quite often it's three steps forward, two steps back. It's a little bit like riding a bicycle. You get on it, you fall off, you get back on it, and it's continuing to, to do it. People can change. It's hard work. Three steps forward, two steps back. And stakeholder-centered coaching works. It's brilliant. And I just want to thank Marshall. I mean, he came up with this. He introduced this to Frank and Chris. They fell in love with it, man. They're like, wow. And they have modified it and tweaked it and streamlined it and simplified it over the years. It works incredibly well, and it doesn't take a lot of time. And we live in a busy world these days. So something works, you get real value, doesn't take a lot of time. I think you're ignorant not giving it serious consideration if you're looking into a coaching process. I would tend to agree with that. And for, um, for those of you listening, you know, we will make mistakes as we get started. Um, but there is a message of hope that, uh, you know, the, the bad news, of course, is that failure will happen. The good news is that it's unlikely to be terminal. Um, and, you know, you're going to be able to pick yourself back up. And oftentimes, some of these big fears and even the near misses, like we discussed with the story, um, can lead to success or at least lead to learnings that drive long-term performance. So um, Andy, on that note, I'd love to ask, you've got quite a rich career. Uh, what has been some of your, your proudest moments as a coach? You know what was so proud? Um, 
I had uh, got some really good results in my coaching engagements. Once I figured out how it's so important to follow the process, I had Marjorie, I had a bunch of others, and I worked closely with Frank and Chris and um, became a master certified coach. And then after doing this and getting a really good track record, uh, Frank Wagner said to me, and this is like five years ago, said, Andy, you know, we want you to be part of our team. We want to experiment and develop an online training certification program in North America. Our partners, which was you, you were doing this in Europe. You were ahead of the game. Andy, would you be willing to work with Chris and I and let's develop it, let's implement it. You'll take a lead role in teaching people. And so we did it for four years. This is before COVID. I've never had more fun in my life working with Frank and Chris, teaching people this methodology. Oh, just great fun. Great fun. Incredible honor. Well, for, again, to those of you who are listening, and this is, this is, Andy, I've, I've mentioned earlier, this, this whole um, series is specifically for our coaches. So if you're listening and you were trained by Andy, if you went through the certification with Frank and Andy or Chris and Andy, leave a comment or send Andy an email just to, to show some appreciation because he really done a lot of work to expand what we're doing, especially here in North America. Um, and it's great that you've been doing that. Um, Andy, remind me again, how many years have you been uh, coaching formally? Formally, it's now it's probably about 15 15. And all I do now is stakeholder-centered coaching. I was originally ICF certified mm -hmm. and, you know, spent a lot of time and money doing that. And I just, I, I didn't renew my ICF certification because I think stakeholder-centered coaching works so much better. It's much more effective getting people to make positive long-term changes in behavior. So ICF stakeholder-centered coaching to me, it's 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 a no brainer. That's all I do now. Mm -hmm. Do you use other? So you do, you're not using other coaching methodologies um, in your practice? No. Yeah. And I spend a lot of money getting <laughs> trained, and yeah. I have all these value <laughs> clarification. I can do this. I can do that. I don't. I get leaders out of their comfort zone, follow the process, engage with your coworkers, and that's where the magic happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's true for many of our our coaches, is especially um, especially brand new coaches and especially veteran ones. Uh, you know, those who have been doing it just for a few years continue, um, but we find veteran ones get certified and they don't do a whole lot more after that. They find uh, they don't do a whole lot more trainings. They do deeper learnings or they get additional tool sets, but stick to that stakeholder center coaching uh, methodology. And then those who just start out, you know, this was my my only coach certification. I didn't have any, I still don't have any affiliation with um, ICF, nor does Marshall, Chris, or Frank, any of our um, founders, because that's all that we need. But boy, these trainings sure are like a, a drug to us. It's just, we're such uh, vivacious uh, learners. We just constantly want to take more in. Um, in your 15 years of coaching, I'd like to ask, did anything surprise you? Anything just completely blow your mind? It was stakeholder-centered coaching, how well it works, <laughs> just how well it works. Mm -hmm. You know, you have a leader that uh, has enormous potential, but, you know, simple behaviors holding them back. And it's the power of change. It's the power of relationship and the power of checking in with stakeholders mm -hmm. um, and the power of time. 
you know, someone is not going to get better in three months. Perceptions aren't going to be changed in three months. You need to work with someone for about a year. Brandon, I want to give kudos to you because you did this research study. The one you talked about earlier, I read it when you were getting your MBA. I don't understand a lot of the theories and some of the mathematical stuff. But you think about it. One of the beautiful, profound things with our coaching process is that while a leader changes behavior here, which is hard, uh, perceptions are changing over here. So in parallel, behaviors are changing and perceptions are changing because the leader checks in every single month right? Leaders can change behaviors, right? It happens all the time, but is it seen, recognized, and acknowledged by the key people they work with? No. Um, it's sort of like you have to turn on a flashlight to these guys, the stakeholders, and say, I've made these changes. We get in our own cocoons and we don't see stuff out there. Um, so brilliant part about the coaching in parallel, leader changes behaviors, stakeholders see it and are involved and given kudos in the process. And when you merge those two things together, um, wonderful. Now, getting back to your, your uh, MBA dissertation, you know, it takes about, I don't know, eight to nine months of leaders checking in with stakeholders before the stakeholders think, you know, this is for real. This is just for real. They've done this now for eight or nine months. I think this is going to stick. This is not a flash in the pan and their stakeholders perceptions solidify. And they're like, yeah, Marjorie's all in. This is the real deal. Now that's not going to happen after the first month or two. Uh, it, uh, perceptual change takes time. And I don't think there are any shortcuts to it. Kudos to that, uh, uh, that dissertation you did. That was an eye opener for me. Thank you. And, you know, my hope is to continue this uh, with the dissertation I'm working on now for my, uh, for my doctorate. But that's what will be one of the key things we'll be looking at is, you know, before we looked at what is the time period at which leaders experience the greatest amount of change, it's 12 months, statistically significant, about 41% um, higher mean averages after 12 months. But we don't see a lot of difference there in between. We see big differences happening at six months, big differences happening at 12 months. Um, and what, we're, what we'll be doing in the future is looking what happens beyond that. We'll be looking at what happens when the coach uh, leaves and you continue to do it or don't continue to do it. How quickly yeah, does that deteriorate yeah. if you're not on the ball? That's fascinating. I'd love to be involved with that and help you any way I can with that. Thank you. Um, well, let's talk, continue talking about your career. Uh, we know Chris Coffey was a big, a big helper to you, Frank Wagner as well, the, the support of the network. Um, outside of that, I'd love to know what, what resources were particularly impactful to you, whether that's videos, whether that's uh, training programs, whether that's books, what was particularly helpful to you as you were starting out? So as I was starting out, um, I had to market my service and I marketed it through uh, Rotary. I got very active with my local chamber of commerce and I used a network to get the word out, right? And that was incredibly helpful. I ended up doing some coaching with the leader of the chamber of commerce and use that as a vehicle to, you know, get that validation and some kudos and uh, what's the word I'm looking for um, confirmation that I, that I can do this and I can add mm -hmm. value. And then when it came to the, the craft, uh, uh, one of the great things with the certification training is that there's the coach's playbook. It's kind of like our Bible and it's this thick guy 
and it's got all sorts of examples. I've read that thing 10 times. I've written on every page. Now with the evolution of it all and the work that you're doing on the website, the wealth of resources for our certified coaches on our website, the coaches portal, there is more information out there that um, would have, ideally back in the day, it would have uh, accelerated and shortened my learning curve because it's all there. So there are so many resources for stakeholder-centered coaching and that's kudos to you as well and Brandon and, the, uh, and Julian and the great work that you guys are doing to take this to the next step and to the next level. Exciting. Thank you, I appreciate that very much. Um, then perhaps I could ask, uh, let's say you could rewind the tape. Uh, you go to the coach's portal and you see that one resource that's just exactly what you needed right then. You click on it. What comes up on your screen? What's that resource? A brief synopsis of the steps involved. Mm. This is where you start. This is where you next. This is where you go next. Just a brief one page steps. Mm. And then ideally for each step, you click on something and, and, and more information would show up. Now, all of that's in the playbook. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing of the importance when you're first starting and you feel really alone, uh, stakeholder-centered coaching is all these moving parts. And mm -hmm. there's a learning curve to this. And one of the things I'm grateful for, and I tend to be an extrovert, as you can tell, is that as I went through this coaching process and I wasn't sure to do, I'd call Chris Coffey. Mm -hmm. I would call him. And sometimes he was at Dick's Sporting Goods. He'd pick up the phone. He'd be at yeah. Walmart. I called him once and he was playing golf. Yeah. I'm like, Chris, I'm not too sure what to do here. Here's the situation. Boom, boom, boom. He's like, okay, Andy. Yeah, that step's correct. That one, that one over here. You know what? Do it this way instead. Mm -hmm. I'd be like, thank you. Okay, I got to run. Bye. Yeah. Call me again if you need it. <laughs> so it was this very pre-focused ones. Uh once he's in the parking lot of Dick's Sporting Goods and I'm talking to him and, you know, um, he's debating what golf balls to buy. And he's like, well, yeah. Andy, uh, coaching engagement, do this instead. This is working. You don't need to do that much. You're working too hard. Make sure that there's more stakeholder engagement. Um, what a brilliant guy. I mean, yeah, what a brilliant. And also his passing is a huge loss for our community. Um, mm. All of his contributions will continue. Uh, but boy, I miss the guy. I still have sticky notes here on my monitor of just amazing one-liners that he's given me that I pick up from the the calls that he typically will have on the golf course or while he's driving. Or I, I probably shouldn't say this on air, but one time I heard him speaking with a, an officer, a police officer, while he was in his vehicle, and I don't know if he was he was thanking the the person. So I don't know if he was gotten pulled over or was just being a, a great citizen as he typically is. But yeah, the calls with, with yeah. Chris were always, always something. Yeah. So Brandon, what I'm grateful for is that I had the opportunity to learn, to train with, and to be in sponge mode around Chris Coffey for about six years mm -hmm. to absorb everything, his wealth, his stories, his expertise, his wisdom. Uh, and I'm grateful for it and I'm blessed. Uh, yes. Well, good shout out to him. Um, and you know, uh, achieving success as a coach is obviously not an easy task, but it, it sure, he sure made it easier for us with the right advice at the right time. Um, and so 
with that, I'd like to give you the chance to provide some advice as well to, to our audience. So my question is this, if you had to do it all over again, right back from the beginning, you pick up what got you here, won't get you there. You stay up till two o'clock reading it, you close it. What would you do differently from there? Uh, it's easy. Don't take bad engagements. Uh, you meet someone they want to coach. Let's start working tomorrow. You know, stakeholder center coaching. You do this, you do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, slow it down. Don't take bad engagements. Make for they qual- Make sure they qualify for our coaching process and are willing to do the required steps. Go slower at the beginning so you can go faster at the end. I and like sometimes that. the slower things happen, uh, the more progress, the better results that you get. Go slower to get better results at the beginning. Don't take a bad engagement because you won't sleep at night. You'll have to fire them. And that's no fun. I think it was, uh, I think it was Bill Zeeb, the first episode of the show, actually, where he said um, his policy is that he'll discuss these things on, I think he discusses it on a Friday and he'll check in on Monday. And unless it's a heck yes for you and for the team, we're not going to do it. But he has a built-in lead time that says you need to think about whether you're really willing to do the hardest parts of this. And unless you are absolutely into it, emphatically excited about it, it's just not going to happen. Um, and I think yeah, that's- You have to be careful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the things I love is part of the training and stakeholder-centered coaching. And during this screening process, you do a cost-benefit analysis. Mm-hmm. You know, suppose you got better at this goal of becoming a better collaborator in delegation. What would that do for you? What are all the benefits that you get out of becoming a better leader? I like to do it on flip charts. All right. Now, what happens if things stay the same and you don't change? Maybe you'd be stuck. You won't have to find a different job, be stuck in your career. Uh, so when you do a cost benefit analysis very early on in the screening process, it helps you understand the motivation level of this leader and whether they're going to do the work that it requires. Uh, and if you do a good cost benefit analysis and they see all the benefits of getting out of their comfort zone, boom, mm-hmm. let's go, baby. Let's have some fun. Yeah, I've heard other coaches on our network talk about uh, or say that you do the cost-benefit analysis quite um, quite thoroughly, more than most. Tell me a little bit about how that actually looks, because I'm also a, a huge proponent, and I wish more people were as enthusiastic about it as you are. What does your activity uh, so, look like? I so I actually do it twice. <laughs> I do it in the, the screening process before formal coaching engagement starts. And then I do it uh, also in the first coaching session, which usually is maybe uh, two to three weeks or a month later, uh, just to double check. So when I when I screen them, and I learned this from Chris Coffey, I show them the 20 most worked on leadership skills. I say, suppose you got one or two of these that you got really good at, and you were seen, recognized, and acknowledged for becoming a better delegator or building trust, whatever they may be, uh, what would all the benefits be? And you just shut up and you keep saying, what else? Well, let's see, if I was a better delegator, um, it would um, uh, help develop my people. It would make them uh, better at what they do. They'd acquire more skills. What else? Uh, I'd get home at around 530 instead of 730 every night. And I'd be able to have dinner with my family. What else? 
um, I could focus on stuff that adds real value and not do a lot of the busy work. I could delegate that to someone else. So you keep going through that. And when I did this one with Marjorie, she had about 12 things, hardcore, wonderful benefits of becoming a better leader. And then you say, you know, what are the drawbacks? What are the costs of you doing it? Well, it might take more time. I have to train people and get them up to speed on certain skills. So in order for me to delegate, they have to be able to do this other stuff. Uh, let's see. Um, if I don't become a better delegator, I'm going to get headaches. I'm going to stress out. I might burn out. So you take your time and you go through this. Um, and then during the first coaching session, when the goals are really established after the 360, you do it again. Let's review this. Let's talk. What else? Well, you know, Andy, I didn't think about that. You know, they want me to work on building trust. Some of the benefits, if I build trust, I'm going to have a lot less turnover. I can keep valuable people. If I have more more trust, people will be more open-minded and sharing ideas uh, and solutions. And she's boom, 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 boom. And I just shut what else? Write it down. And the nice thing about Zoom is that you can do a share screen and pull up a Word document. What else? What else? Now, what are the consequences? If you don't develop trust, what's going to happen? I'm going to have continue to have turnover. We're going to have a hard time getting the product out the door at the required time. There is going to be manufacturing flaws. Um, I'm going to have to chase people. There's going to be this tension. And I'm not going to be the most welcoming, loving person when I get home and say, hey, honey, how was your day? So um, cost-benefit analysis in our coaching process are invaluable and it's a gotta do. All right. So Andy, you go through this exercise, you have a full list of benefits. How do you use that throughout your coaching? Yeah. So cost benefit analysis, you have this rich list of all of the benefits of them making healthy changes in the way they act as a leader. And then you also have consequences if things stay the same. So, you know, as I mentioned, I do it in my initial screening and I do it in the first coaching session. Now, as they go along month in and month out of our coaching process, if they, if the road gets bumpy, right? Or if they lose some energy or they begin to deviate from the coaching process, I pull it right back up and I show it to them. Listen, I'm a little bit worried. You know, we're taking a left-hand turn and we need to be going straight. Here are all the benefits of you doing this month in and month out. And it's a visual awareness. And I make sure they have a copy on it. I remember I actually laminated one for a leader years ago and um, mailed it to him and he actually kept it on his desk. It's a motivational tool to help them toward the end of the coaching process when they start getting a little bit tired and, you know, they want it maybe to come to an end, but it's that last component as your research indicate that's key for stakeholder perceptions to make sure they solidify. Um, so it's a motivational tool to keep them on track when the road might get a little bit bumpy or maybe even a little bit boring for the leader. Mm. You mentioned earlier that as long as the size of the, the carrot or the incentive to get better is strong, um, this will help them get better. And it sounds like you achieve that with the, the cost-benefit analysis. Have you ever had someone who has too many costs and not enough benefits? Uh, no. No. 
not yet, and I'm going to knock on wood here. Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting. You know, a good rule of thumb when you do a cost-benefit analysis with a leader up front. Ideally, for every four positives, there's one negative. Mm. You know, you want you, you want the benefits to outweigh the costs. If they don't, you have to slow it down and say, you know, I'm a little bit worried. It looks like, you know, you've got the costs of doing this kind of outweigh the benefits. Are you sure you want to move forward? And they'll say, you know, Andy, I've thought about it. If I can just do this one thing, become a better delegator, it will outweigh all of those costs. So you just slow it down and make sure we have a green light moving forward. Sometimes the slower you go, the faster things happen. Sage advice for any coach, for any coach who is using stakeholder center coaching. Um, and one challenge that we have or that we hear from um, clients that call us, uh, we have clients who call and say, you know, we're not really sure what coaching is, but we have some leaders who would be very valuable to us if they just fix those one or two bothersome behaviors. Uh, they're not sure where to start. They say there's too many, too much differentiation in the market. You can't really tell who's who without going too deep into reading about what makes each um, methodology theirs. What advice would you have for a leader who says, I think coaching might be something I'm interested in, but I'm just not sure where to start? So I would have them look at the efficacy, look at the research. Uh, is the coaching process or modality that you're looking at, is it research validated? Does it work? Has it been used all over the world? What does the research show? I don't know of any other coaching process behind, besides ours that's been so research so intensively and has such good results. The other thing I tell with a leader is that if you use stakeholder-centered coaching, you're only going to pay at the end if you get results. So it's not really that much of a risk. Um, <clears throat> try it and make sure that you can embrace courage, humility, and discipline and get out of your comfort zone and really cool things will happen. I think there are a lot of coaching processes out there. I don't think work. Mm -hmm. Stakeholder-centered coaching does. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, a lot of coaching methodologies will help people feel better or maybe look look a little bit better in their own eyes, but not many have that, that impact um, from the stakeholder You know, it's, it's interesting, and, and Chris drilled this into my head. Andy, your job is not to be a leader's best friend. You know, your job is to get them out of their comfort zone and to do things that will help them get to where they want to be. And you've got to push them you've, and prod them. You do it with love in your heart, but you're getting them out of their comfort zone into, you know, areas that, you know, re require courage. It might be a little bit scary, you know, going up to someone and say, you know, uh, I rolled my eyes at you last week during the staff meeting and I feel really bad about it. And I'm going to try moving forward not to do that again. And if I do it again, Please hold me accountable. Oof. Oof. Talk about the courage it takes to do something like that, you know. No and if you have a huge ego, that's not part of the equation. You won't do it. It's too scary. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's scary to think about. Um, even you know, having done this myself, uh, I'm curious. I'm curious. You, we've, you've mentioned um, a couple times so far that this has impacts beyond the business. Makes people. Um, better at home, better members of their community, better family members. Uh, is this something that you use yourself outside of your work as a coach? 
So question. when I first saw Marshall Goldsmith speak, I went. Uh, Frank invited me to join him and Marshall at a a, a workshop in a in Dallas, Texas. So I'm at this training, and Marshall's leading it, and we're halfway through it, and uh, you know, maybe 200 people in the room. And it's like, this is Marshall Goldsmith. First time I got to meet him. Here's the rock and roll star doing his thing. I'm like, this is cool. And so we get through it, and he goes, everyone, take out your mobile phone. Oh, and yes. uh, we all took out our mobile phone. And I want you to send a text to a person that you love. Maybe it is a significant other, wife, husband, partner. And you're going to send a text and just say, what can I do? to be a better husband, a better wife. And so I'm jazzed. I have it out. And, you know, and so, and he stops the workshop, take five minutes and do that. And we're all looking at each other. This guy lost his mind. Are you, are you kidding me? So I take it out and I say, Hey, hey honey. Um, and my wife's name is Christine. Hey, honey. I'm, um, I'm just curious. What can I do when I get home from this training uh, to be a, a better partner, a better husband, better family, you know, better dad. What can I do that would help our relationship? And I sent the text, right? And my wife paused and she texted me back and said, oh, honey, um, uh, I don't really know how to answer this. Let's talk about this more when you come home. <laughs> so I came home, Brandon, and um. I did a daily action sheet, right? And I'm figuring, you know, if I'm going to teach this and coach people, I need to go through the walk myself. And my wife gave me three or four things I could work on to be a, you know, a, a better husband. One of them was some, you know, uh, pay more attention to me, listen to me better, really listen to me, spend more time with Bobby, my son. Some other stuff is put the toilet seat down, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, some small stuff. So I had a, you know, a, my, you know, an action plan and I did it for about six months and every month I'd check in with her. So honey, how am I doing with listening? And um, it was a humbling experience because there were sometimes I would really listen to her and she thinks I wasn't listening, but I was listening. So we would laugh a lot as we went through it and it really helped my relationship with my wife. And it mm -hmm. takes courage, humility, and discipline to do it. It wasn't easy. Oh yeah, especially at home where you feel exposed. I mean, you shouldn't feel exposed, but you definitely do. Yeah. Um, how about yeah. with your with your boy? I know you've got a high school boy. Um, yeah. Have you been able to implement yeah. with him as well? So when he was in middle school, I said, "Bobby, I want to know what can I do to be a better father." Mm -hmm. He looked at me really weird. He goes, "Dad, you're you're a good dad." You know, I don't know. And I said, "If there's anything I can do moving forward that would make me a better dad, let me know." You know, this is the first time I've been a dad with you. I only have one kid. Let me know. So, um, and he's just looked at me weird and, you know, um, he never really gave me a specific idea. I have apologized to him sometimes when I've been stressed out and not been as patient as I need to, or he's not doing his chores, but uh, he's a wonderful kid. And yeah, I think the application of stakeholder-centered uh, coaching, the philosophy, it, the philosophy of it has universal uh, implications. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's something I definitely hope to to branch out to sometime in the next 10, 15 years, because this is, you know, we have coaches in our network, Andy, and you may have interacted with some of them who are using this in really unique ways. Um, we have one, one coach who is terminally ill. They got certified. And when we talked about their motivation, they said, you know, I'm sitting here every day with this, this, uh, medical staff 
And they're practically, you know, we spend more time with the medical staff here than with our own families because they're in what is essentially hospice care. And she said, you know, I just see how they treat some of the patients as patients and not as humans. And she said, all I want to do is be the bridge between the patient and the physicians and nurses and medical staff. And oh my goodness, we've seen people do, I've personally applied this in privatized education between young students and um, teachers. It's a, it's a, a topic I'm passionate about. And it is amazing the, the breadth yeah. of application that it has far beyond business. Yeah. I think it's one of the keys on a higher level. If we all lived with courage, humility, and discipline, I think there'd be a lot more peace in the world. Oh, that's beautiful. So we also have um, leaders who will call us um, with great confidentiality and say, look, I have a coach. I've been working with them for a while and I'm just not real happy with it. I'm not sure how to bring it up with them. I'm not sure if I should stay with them. Um, and there's not a lot of support out there. You can't Google search. I don't like my coach. What do I do about it? What advice would you have for that individual? Oh boy. Uh, in the spirit of Chris coffee, if you have a coach and this coach is not helping you get results, fire him. Just say, I appreciate it. it hasn't been a fit for me or make an excuse to move on and get a coach that can help you get results. Uh, don't stick with a coach if nothing good is happening. It's a waste of time. Um, giving a coach false praise. I mean, it's a complete waste of time and money. I would end it. Do it in a respectful way. Uh, I've enjoyed the experience. Best of luck moving forward uh, and get out of it. Mm -hmm. And if you ruffle some feathers, you ruffle some feathers. You don't, life is short. You don't want to waste time and money doing something that just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course, it's also the kind thing to do. I think many of us forget that sometimes firing is the nicest thing you can do to get someone out to something better faster. Um, then on that note, what, uh, what qualities or characteristics or traits um, would you think all coaches should possess to be successful in this field? So to be successful in stakeholder-centered coaching, I think it's a couple different things. I think skill-wise, you've got to have courage, humility, and discipline, and you have to display it uh, as a coach. And if you don't, if you don't walk the walk, it, you're going to have a harder time getting the leader to do it. So courage, humility, discipline, Follow the process, screen your leaders carefully. The other skills for newer coaches is to do uh, develop a marketing plan. And I would start locally. I would market your service to people you know, uh, to the network that you currently have, and uh, get coaching engagements under your belt. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's huge. Yeah, I'll, I'll say to anyone listening, the best tool that you can have for acquiring clients is past clients. There's Many coaches will think it's a competitive advantage to walk into the waiting room full of coaches for that chemistry session and say, here's the testimonials. Brandon made me feel good. Brandon and I had a lot of fun working together. It just doesn't carry weight. What carries weight is to say, look, minus three to plus three, here's what each stakeholder or what the stakeholders on average said about 
my previous clients. And they don't have to be high ticket paying clients. They can be pro bono clients. They don't need to be Fortune 500 CEOs. They can be your local uh, hairdresser shop who is just looking to fix that behavior. So definitely get out there um, and make yourself known through that. And uh, what you're talking about is market through the results. At the end of the day, people want results. You're paying for results. You know, we're not talking about, you know, I want a coach that's a Buffalo Bills fan like me. You know, at the end of the day, what I want, even though I hope the Buffalo Bills win the Super Bowl, I don't think they will, but maybe they will. Uh, you want a coach that's going to get you out of your comfort zone and get, get you results. At the end of the day, it's all about results and adding real value. I like that. Good luck with the Buffalo Bills, by the way. Good luck. Thank you. I'll take it. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know who the Buffalo Bills are, don't worry about it. It's a, it's an NFL team. Probably not the name. Probably not a name you'll hear anytime soon. But I, I digress. Uh, Andy, I jest. I'm not a football fan personally. Um, I, That's okay. But I'll. Root I for forgive them you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to add that to my action plan is get involved with uh, what the bills are doing. Um, good. Well, let's ask, uh, I'd love to know um, in your personal life, um, I hear a lot of coaches use coaching as a profession to build what are beautiful standards of living. I mean, we talked about Chris always being you know, on the golf course or just living his life while he's doing his work. You know, how have you been able to shape your your personal life the way that you want as a coach? Or how has coaching been a vehicle for you to design your lifestyle? Yeah, you know what's great about stakeholder-centered coaching is that once you get through the initial stage, you get through the setup, you do a couple of coaching sessions, you do the kickoff meeting. After that, and that normally happens within the first two months, after that, you do these periodic brief check-ins with the leader. And if you qualify them, you screen them. Stakeholder-centered coaching doesn't take me a lot of time. I mean, you check in every couple of weeks, sometimes for half an hour, 45 minutes, sometimes for 10 minutes. As long as they're doing their check-ins, their daily sheet, you know, you can get paid very, very well for doing something that takes don't tell too many people, maybe half an hour every other week, yeah. you know? Uh, so it's kind of ideal. You get paid very well for not working very hard and not taking yeah. something that's not time consuming. <laughs> and you don't want to charge by the hour. Charging by the hour is old school and sends the wrong message. Pay for results is, look, just don't worry about the time you put in. If you get the results you need at the end of the engagement, pay me. Uh, and when the engagements go really well, I had one uh, guy named Chester Elton, wonderful human being. We did a nine-month coaching engagement. He was all in from the beginning. And month uh, six, seven, eight, and nine, um, I checked in with him maybe an hour a month. You know, do you know the, the story about how much time Marshall spent with Alan Mulally? Did you ever hear us. that? Tell us. So I had this fascinating fascinating experience with Marshall Goldsmith. So I'm helping Frank do a training in uh, Jersey City. Uh, this is about five years ago, maybe six. Uh, and uh, we're doing a certification Jersey City. 
and you're in Jersey City, you look across the Hudson River and there's the New York City skyline, spectacular, magnificent, especially at night. So we're there and as it turns out, Marshall Goldsmith's in town, right? And we get invited to a potluck dinner at his house. Now it's not every day I'm gonna hang out with Marshall Goldsmith. So Frank and I, we finish the training, we catch a subway, we go underneath, I think it's the, it's, I think it's the Hudson River or the East River, and he has a condo on 42nd Street. And, you know, we show up with, uh, you know, a pizza, a bottle of red wine, a little vegetable spread. And it was during uh, the holiday season. It was in December. So Manhattan during the holiday season is beautiful, especially Times Square. Just it's remarkable. So we're up at, uh, you know, his condo. And there are about maybe 10 or 15 people for kind of this little potluck holiday reconnection. And. So we're there and I'll, I'll never forget it. You know, I'm having a glass of red wine and I'm eating some carrots, a little piece of cold pizza and dipping the celery in the dip. And there's Frank Wagner and there's Marshall. And um, Marshall starts talking about Alan Mulally. And I'm there and he's got this smirk on his face. And he goes, you know, I worked with Alan Mulally for a year, transformed the culture at Ford, got paid 250K. Guess how many hours I spent actually working with him throughout the year? And there was silence. And then he looks at everyone. No, like Frank knew the answer, but he stayed quiet. And he goes, eight hours. He goes, I spent eight hours with him, got paid 250K, transformed the culture at Ford Motor Company. And he said, he followed the process. He knew the process. I would check in with him periodically over the year, and I stayed out of his way. And he says the results he got from that one coaching engagement were by far the most successful, the highest of any coaching engagement he had. And he spent the less amount of time with him. One year, eight hours, 250K. Are you kidding me? Um, and that's the power of this. It's not so much about the coach. It's about the leader checking in with stakeholders, embracing courage, humility, and discipline, getting feedback and measuring how it's turning out. It's brilliant. It's simple and it works. Thank you, Marshall Goldsmith for creating it. Yeah. And how many people got better from that engagement? Oh, thousands. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. thousands. You know, what's interesting at the end of his tenure, the um, the union of auto workers gave him like a 97% approval rate, which crazy. is, which is an auto union. Yeah. Which is crazy. And he embraced courage, humility, discipline, and, uh, what a remarkable, remarkable leader. And at stakeholder centered, that's probably the best case study you have for transformational organizational change. The other thing that Marshall said that evening is that, you know, people talk about changing culture in organizations, then it takes years to change cultures. Mm. And he goes, not with Ford Motor Company. You get the top people in C-suite, all in with stakeholder-centered coaching, living the values, changing their behavior. You can change culture within a couple of years if the top leaders are doing it and encouraging it and push it down. It, changing culture does not have to take a lot of time. Boom. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he, he walked the talk. He lived it. He was 
adamant and unforgiving towards anyone who wasn't willing to abide by the the values. That's right. And showed that both with his behavior, with his pocketbook, with the company pocketbook. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I think that Marshall and Allen, they travel a lot together. They're doing webinars and marketing stuff and talking about truly effective leaders, how you get people to change behaviors, how do you drive engagement, all the key stuff that we need more of in our uh, corporate world these days. Oh, yeah. Well, um, you know, I'm going to pitch up a question. I'm going to give us a close out, but have a think about this for a moment. Um, in stakeholder center coaching, we have a list of do's and do nots that we give to the leaders and says, here's what you should do. Here's what you should not do. Very simple, very behavioral. Um, if we were to provide this to coaches and this falls under advice, if we provide this to coaches, what are a few prescriptions that you would give within there? Have a think about it. Um, because we are nearing the top of our time together. So uh, I want to invite those of you who are watching at home or listening on the way to or from work, if you're listening at the gym, um, if there's a question you'd like to ask, if there is a coach or even a leader you'd like to see interviewed, uh, drop us a line, podcast at mgscc.net, podcast at mgscc.net. We'll link that down below. Um, And if you're interested in learning more about our program, go to mgscc.net forward slash sample course, all one word sample course, um, to get instant access to the course Foundations of Stakeholder Center Coaching, where you can learn all the founding principles of the coaching methodology, including courage, humility, and discipline, you know, what makes a coachable leader, cases where executive coaching won't work. Um, That is a course we provide uh, at no cost to you that you can take advantage of and have lifetime access to anytime. So Andy, do's and do nots. What might be on your list for coaches? But what a great question. So what are the key things you need to do to be a successful stakeholder centered coach? Is that the question, Brandon? Yeah. All right. Um, screen your leader carefully and make sure they're all in. In other words, don't take a bad engagement. Take your time up front. Number two, get a mentor. When you first start, I had the the privilege and the blessed to have, uh, you know, uh, worked and collaborated with Chris Coffey. He was my mentor. He gave me the guidance I needed. So get a mentor. Uh, the other thing is make sure the engagement is at least eight months, preferably a year. I can't tell you how many coaches I work with that say, you know, Andy, yeah, um, you know, I went through the training. It was great. Yada, yada, yada. Oh, yeah. I, we just decided to do it for four months. And that's a red flag for disaster. So do make sure you get at least eight, at least eight months. Um, I'm a year guy. I'm a minimum of a year. So make sure that the coaching engagement is long. That is imperative. What are some other do's? Have fun in the coaching engagement. Uh, don't be too serious with a leader. Get them laughing. Get them out of their comfort zone. Have fun with them. You don't need to be deadpan serious. Be yourself. Have fun. Uh, so that's, I don't know, that's four or five do's. The other do's that you need to do is I would market locally. Just start locally with your network and take people out to coffee. Get the word out. Join your local chamber of commerce. Do a lunch and learn. Just get out there and get exposure. Now, don't. What are, don't take a bad engagement, number one. 
uh, don't skip the steps in the coaching process. And the, the reason that coaches do that is that they have this innate desire to add value. You know, I'm a certified coach. I spent years getting training. I want to add value. Be very careful with that. Um, stick to the process and don't add too much value. I can't tell you how many coaches call me and they're working too hard and they're doing all these things that the stakeholders should be doing instead. So pull back, follow the process. Do not skip the steps because it will come back to haunt you later on. Um, and don't keep working with a leader if they're not engaged. Fire them, end it, move on. They'll be relieved. You'll sleep a lot better at night. What other don'ts? Don't give up. You know, keep plugging along. You know, it's a competitive industry. And uh, yeah, be persistent. Uh, keep knocking on doors. And then once you get some success stories under your belt, you've got some very powerful uh, marketing tools that you can talk about, especially the results. So how does that sound, Brandon, for do's and don'ts? It sounds good. I think we'll just keep on asking this question in these interviews because what we want to do is use this as a way to help our coaches enrich their careers. And I think you've given us a wonderful roadmap. So Andy, it has been a pleasure to have you. Before we say goodbye, uh, could you tell us how could our listeners follow your story, get in touch with you, or just learn more about you? Yeah. So my email, and feel free to reach out to me. I love helping people. I love helping coaches especially. So it's andy at andytaylorcoaching.com. That's my uh, my email address. Um, and then go to my website. You can, you know, there's a, a contact form there. My website is uh, www.andytaylorcoaching.com. So email me. Um, I've got all my contact information on my uh, website. And uh, I'm serious about that. And I know Chris Coffey is serious about the late Chris Coffey and Frank Wagner. If you reach out to us and you need help, it's the way that we give back. Um, so yeah, that's my contact information. Brandon, I just wanted to thank you as well. What you're doing with stakeholder-centered coaching now and the innovative things that you're doing in terms of program development, networking, marketing, you're taking our process, uh, modifying it and making it work even better for the modern world that we're living in. I just appreciate that so much. Thank you, thank you so much, Andy. Well, ladies and gentlemen, my guest, Andy Taylor, uh, you can find him on andytaylorcoaching.com. You can reach him at andy at andytaylorcoaching.com. Uh, this show was produced by Stakeholder Center Coaching, where we believe everyone deserves a stakeholder-centered leader. Join us next week for another episode of Conversations with Coaches.